Hi, all. This is Charlie and uh, Nicole. Hello, hello. And Beth McCrave. Hi. Uh, hi. And uh, we're here in the podcast To Hell and Back. And I think we're just going to jump in because uh, this is actually a podcast number two in a series because uh, we did a podcast already and maybe you've already seen it or, or heard it or you could go back to it um, about Beth's experience of her son, Ross, uh, who took his life two years ago at the age of 24. And uh, we were learning about Ross and his development, his life, and Beth, what it was like to be with him as he grew up last time. And if you didn't hear this last time, I highly recommend it. This was an incredible young man, um, sort of remarkable, uh, charismatic. We uh, had a lot of a lot of major troubles, as as Beth put it. I think last time, um, he was the source of a lot of crying, and he was the source of a lot of laughter. And he was he was in certain in his own ways, he was a genius, and, yeah. and he was very smart. So uh, I recommend that. We got up to the point that he was, had not yet taken his life when we went through the story last time. But we wanted to get started now with some reflections uh, before we get to that point about what it was like to be Beth. And her husband is not on the screen, but she has a husband who was also there. And she had a, has a son uh, who was also around some of the time and a son's fiance, and they actually are going to appear in a future podcast very soon to talk about their experiences. But we wanted to talk about what it's like to be a family member, a parent in particular, uh, when you have your son uh, struggling so much and, and in the household and not knowing what to do and uh, not hearing much from him and just, you know, what that's like, because a lot of people just may, may know something about what it's like to be in his shoes, because maybe you're a therapist or maybe you've known somebody, but some people don't realize what it's like to be a family member in that environment. So um, so Beth has uh, agreed to talk about what that was like and uh, recall some of those things. And so, uh, you know, uh, Nicole and I are just going to be a supporting cast here. Yeah. As we really, Beth, Beth is the one who knows uh, about this and, and has also done lots of teaching in family connections about what it's like to be a family member and how to be skillful as a family member. But I think she found it's really hard to be skillful in this situation. So, Beth, I'm just going to turn it over to you. If you would sort of tell us what it was like to be his mom in the house in those you know, I went for quite a while, but at least those final months of his life. Well, I think, I mean, it, it was a very long haul for us, for sure. And he, he it just, um, it was a, a daily thing. And I, uh, it was very difficult to, um, to, it's difficult to be skillful, even when you know some skills, just because your emotions your, your, your emotions get in the way. They definitely get in the way. And that is, can be fear and um, hopelessness and also just grief um, about the way things are going. Um, I think, I think family members, you know, and including our family, I mean, you were just, you're just on the sort of on the front lines every day. So, so, you know, sometimes there, there can be 
hopeful or good things happening, and still you can feel like you don't want to uh, get your hopes up too much because so many things have um, have not lasted in the past. So I just, I mean, the main point that I wanted to make, I think, is that um, if you are a clinician and you haven't uh, had the opportunity or you haven't worked with families, then I think it's easy to if you see a kid, you know, once a week or something, it's easy to to think, oh, well, you should be doing this or you should be doing that. And um, that will help your situation. And it's it's just nowhere near that easy. And I see that a lot in family connections because people, you know, family members come in and really for the very first time when they talk to other family members, they uh, are under they are understood because n not even you know your close friends really people who aren't uh, living that kind of situation don't really understand and so it's a very hard thing to talk about because if you talk about it with your friends people will offer advice you know I got advice like well sign him up for a yoga class and I thought yeah great I'll I'll do that you know th things like that, that and and it's well meaning but it's it doesn't understand there's not an understanding of the depth of the suffering that's happening in your house in front of you and what what that makes the whole house feel like like for us when he was really depressed I mean, it felt like the whole barometric pressure of the house just dropped. And it uh, it was really like a physical feeling and like a cloud over the house. And it was very, very challenging not you know, to not respond to that sometimes, but also very challenging to not let it uh, suck you down into, you know, into that same feeling and not be able to then then be helpful at all. And so really that's what um, family members need I think is just uh, those th they need support for sure but they need a lot more than that I think they really just need skills to be able to um, regain some balance in their lives and in their family because you get so burnt out you just want you know you're just giving and giving and giving and trying things and 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 once you're burnt out you're not helping anyone uh, so Beth, so yeah. one of the, so one thing one thing you're saying I think that may it's I think important to grasp is that this is not something that comes in pulses where uh, oh you there's a bad ten minutes here and a bad conversation mm -hmm. there and the and the kid doesn't come for breakfast or or dinner mm -hmm. or so you're upset it's sort of when you said barometric pressure to lead this off it's sort of like it's all the time yeah. it's all yeah. the time. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I mean, for us, it was over the course, really up and down, naturally, but over the course of a decade, uh, that you know, you're just you're just experiencing these things, and we kind of did feel like no matter, no matter, it seemed like no matter what we tried and how much I I kind of vowed that we would never go back to this isolation that he was doing, it always seemed to gravitate, it always seemed to end up there. It always seemed like he was gravitating back towards isolation and we were trying to fight that isolation. And um, so it was, it's pretty all consuming. I mean, it's consuming for, you know, your, yourself as a person, but it's also consuming for your relationship because, you know, he was living with us. And so, you know, a, a vast majority of our conversations 
centered around, you know, what, what are we going to do now? What are we going to try next? What, you know, what's happening? And, and so, so it, it, it can take over your life. And, um, and we, you know, I, I have, I do see a lot of burned out family members coming into family connections because of course that would happen. And I think, um, so it, it's re, it's really important that family members, if they can, you know, learn those skills, because if you put a kid in DBT, you know, and they learn about validation and they learn about uh, mindfulness and acceptance and, you know, it's not, it's helpful, of course, but it's not so helpful if a parent doesn't know what validation is. And I didn't, if you don't know what invalidation is, then you're invalidating all the time. Uh, and, you know, I wasn't a naturally validating person. I was very geared towards let's, let's fix this. Let's change the, you know, let's change what's happening. And that was not helpful. It was just polarizing. So, so that's, I, I just think it's important for clinicians uh, to, uh, to, to, you know, to get a, a, a wider picture of what's going on. And I see that a lot when they do come to family connections, because they, for the first time, they see this, you know, a room full of 60 parents who are just like sitting on the edge of their seat, wanting to learn stuff and really, uh, you know, really trying to um, improve their situation and reconnect with their with their loved ones. And uh, so that's that's it, really. I think I think it's very eye opening to see that ensure that there you know, there are abusive situations and parents who might, you know, might be doing things uh, intentionally. But from my experience, the vast majority of parents, they just need to know what to do. They, they need it now and they yeah. need lots of it. Beth, from, from your, if you wouldn't mind just painting a picture of what it looked and felt like in your home, you know, you describe kind of living on the front lines. So, you know, was it, was it Ross? spending most of the time in his room and not engaging or was it screaming like what what was a day in the life um so we had a little bit of all of that everything i mean early on i you know earlier on in 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 the course of things he was more he was more explosive you know we had holes in the walls when he would get frustrated we had lots of uh lots of broken electronics um you know he things like that uh that and he would break things primarily. And so that did happen. And, you know, once in a while he would do risky things, uh, you know, take the car, stuff like that. But, but over time, and, and I, I looking back, I can see that at some point it sort of, I think he sort of realized, well, that wasn't working for him because we weren't, um, we weren't tolerating that really anymore. And so, and it wasn't really working. And so, um, he went inside himself, really. And so instead of, you know, he wasn't in DBT at that time. So instead of learning to express himself, he really just went inward. And then it became the isolation and being in his room and uh, staying up all night and becoming almost nocturnal and sleeping during the day, which was very hard for me to go by, you know, his room at one o'clock in the afternoon and know that he, you know, not know even if he's awake or not. And um, I had... You know, I tried lots of things about that, but I, in the end, I tried, you know, to be more accepting of what was happening. And it did, I think, um, improve our relationship. 
because I sort of dropped my agenda for a while. And I think, so we had some more, we had better moments of connection in that mm -hmm. way, but it, it's, it's, um, it's very hard just to not get, to not get sucked down yourself so that you are also feeling depressed mm -hmm. and also, you know, um, not able to function as well. And I did for a long time, I just stayed home before I, before I really learned any skills. I mean, I just stayed home and I thought, um, that was the thing to do. And I would, you know, just, just work on different things and try different strategies. And he hated it and it wasn't, you know, didn't work for me. So I think it's just trying to strive for that balance where you can be uh, supportive, as supportive as you can, and also have a life of your own that's worth living. Um, mm. That's the tricky part because it, 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 it takes over, definitely takes over. And it's not just parent relationships. I don't want to, you know, in, like in family connections, I mean, there's spouse relationships, sibling relationships, grandparent relationships, children of. So it's all, it, it affects, you know, it affects all relationships. In our house, you know, sometimes he would come for holidays and sometimes he wouldn't. And that's really hard to explain to your 86-year-old mom, you know, where's Ross? Like, well, he's not feeling it today, you know, and it's... It, it, it's very hard to, to, to do that, but we learned that, you know, when he could come, he would come. And when he couldn't come, he couldn't come. And that's just, that's the way it was. Very hard to imagine uh, if some, if you're in this situation, then um, any effort that you make to communicate, to ask questions, how are you doing today, Ross? Or, <laughs> What are you thinking? What are, how about this afternoon, Ross? Or how about if we go to the store and do this, Ross? It's sort of like because every parent cares about their kid. So every parent's thinking, what can I do? What can I do? Right. My, my son is it's 1 p.m. He doesn't work. He's not going to school. He was a kid with enormous promise, and he's sleeping away the day, and God knows what he's doing at night. Right. And so what do, what do I do now? And, and then you try something, and it doesn't work. So how to not try too much and how to not try too little. It, how to find some balance, which changes over time, I'm sure. But it like, does. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes he, you know, I mean, there, and I would just jump at the chance if, you know, because once in a while he, he would suggest, you know, going to a bookstore that he would want to go to. And, and, you know, at that, I would just drop everything and go because it was not so frequent. Um so yeah, it, it, it's uh, it's just uh, it's just a, a very much of a, of a daily thing, and you can also get to be when he was in you know when he I felt I felt like over time especially towards the end he was kind of it felt like he was almost making himself invisible a little bit like just he just was shrinking and certainly his world was shrinking but it also felt like he was just you know kind of making himself invisible. And that is different than if someone is making a hole in the wall. And it's, it's, and in some ways it just, it, it can make you feel a little complacent, like, okay, well, you know, maybe, maybe this is a little better, but it's certainly not. And I felt towards the end, you know, I, and after I've, I've thought that isolation, I think 
really isolation should be thought of as self-harm. And I don't, you know, I know, you know, in DBT terms, it's, you know, it's tissue damage and all that kind of stuff. But but isolation really is self-harm. And he used to try to convince me that, um, I don't, you know, I don't need people, you know, and, you know, Emily, Emily Dickinson, you know, just isolated. And, and then I'd say, well, you know, dude, write some poems, you know, or something. But he, but it, it was, uh, it was, uh, you know, just this kind of uh, t- telling me that he didn't, he didn't need to do anything with people. And er- everyone, you know, it's just, hu- it's just humans are wired to be social. And he was not, he was not being social at all. And it, and it really didn't lend itself to like, okay, Ross, you're living at home. So as long as you're here, we want you to participate in some chores. <laughs> I mean, that would be yeah. almost a, like you just laughed because I was just thinking <laughs> that would be a, a joke talking to him the way you've described it up to now. Right. Or, or yeah. was there an opening for things? Like um, there that? was sometimes it, it really, it really, it was, it was very, uh, it could, it was very mood dependent. You know, a lot of stuff was very mood dependent and, and also about how we, how we approached it. So, you know, we learned to approach it in a more skillful way, but you know, there were times when he would pitch in and do stuff. And mm. then there were times when he was just, you know, making a mess and I'd come down in the morning after he'd been up all night and there was just, stuff Mm. everywhere Mm. and so that that's another thing you know it's hard to it's hard to not get frustrated with that it's hard to not get resentful even though he is um you know he's he's i know that he's suffering i know that he's bored out of his mind i know that he was profoundly lonely you know i knew those things Mm. um and at the Mm. same time you know you're you're constantly thinking well just do something like do you know, just take a step, you know, and it, and it, it, uh, it, it didn't seem to change for a very long time, really. Uh, and if anything, yeah. And Beth was, to what degree was explicitly suicide in the air? Well, um, he, this was hard because, and I wish that we listened more to this, but he was telling me, you know, from from a younger age, he was saying, well, you know, look, I'm not going to live a long life. I'm going to his plan. Originally, he told me I'm going to live till 21. That's what he told me till 21. And so I thought mm-hmm. I thought, OK. And then he got to be 21 is on his 21st birthday. You know, I asked him what he wanted for his birthday. And he said first, he said nothing. You know, I, I need nothing. And then he said, um, well, actually, I'd like a, a, a plane ticket to Denmark because they have assisted euthanasia there. And that's what he said. Mm. And so, you know, mm. I, I think he just really wanted me to know how how much how hard his life was. Mm. And then and then, you know, after his 21st birthday, which we made it through, he you know, he his birthdays were not good because I felt like they were a marker to he felt I think he felt they were a marker to another year where he was a failure, another year not doing anything. And then he said, well, maybe, maybe I'll make it to 30. Maybe I'll live to 30. Um, and I thought, uh, you know, what a terrible thing to think. But I thought, oh, good, you know, 30, I have, I have this many more years to, to try other things, you know. And, right. um, he, you know, he didn't. But, but, but he told us in so many ways, you know, he just, he just said, I mean, he would say, give all the, 
give all the money to Teddy because I'm just, you know, he's going to have kids and stuff with Mariah and I'm just going to die. Like he would say stuff like that, not in a threatening way, but in a very, a very matter of fact way. Mm. And, and, uh, he had a firm belief. He just had a very, very firm belief that, that, that there was, it was very black and white. If, if, if things got, uh, not bearable, that he would kill himself and that, that there was nothing in between. It was just there, you know, he didn't really hmm. like uh, or live in gray areas at all. It was just very, uh, black and white thinking. And, and, you know, no, this is, it was like a, it was kind of like having a friend in his back pocket suicide. It's just like this, you know, if things get bad, ah, this is what I can do. This is what I have. And, and, you know, when, when you hear that a lot, um, that when you hear that a lot, you can get almost used to that kind of talk and then you and you and you know and i would see him sort of go down into a depressive episode and then sort of claw his way back out and we saw him do that many many times over the years with whatever skills he had he would seem to come out and so you start to think okay he can do it if he gets you know really depressed he can get himself out but what a what a life and how exhausting is that and he would tell us how you know my life is so hard, especially if he'd been drinking with Teddy or the kids. He would say, you know, my life is so hard. And still, we only saw, I think, I think that we saw just the tip of the iceberg and how much he was really suffering. That's what I think. So what was it like to experience him at the moments where he had clawed out where he maybe was doing a little bit better and to maybe have a little more hope and then to go in that kind of up and down to be in that volatility. That was awful. Cause I really, I, I, I often felt like he was, I felt like he was stably unstable. That was how I would describe him. I felt like that was the case. And, and, you know, he would, he would try these things of his own, of his own devices. And of course he was doing all this reading about philosophy and stuff and he, he would try these things, but, um, it, it, you, after a while I became just cautious about letting my hopes get up because, um, I, I had seen so many times that he would, you know, try these things and then, and then crash. And sometimes, you know, at first Teddy and, and I, and Ted, you know, we'd think, well, is it something that we said or did that, that caused him to go back sort of in the hole? And one day he told me, he just said, no, he said, it just, you know, it's not always related to something. He said, sometimes it just happens. And so he did express that. Um, I mean, he, he needed, he needed just a lot of support that, uh, that he didn't have um, and that he wouldn't, he wouldn't avail himself of. He, he knew he knew very well that there was nothing that we would have done or no place we would have gone to to help him. But and in some ways, I think maybe maybe that was not such a good thing, because I think he might have thought if he tried something and then he failed at it, then, you know, it's another it's just another thing that he failed at. And I do think that he felt he felt that things were his fault 
at this point and that he was a burden. Um, I do now, think- I uh, want to say, I'm, I am, as you would know, but people listening wouldn't necessarily or wouldn't have any way of knowing that during those two years uh, before he took his life, uh, you would come every once in a while to where I am in Northampton to consult with me and talk about what to do. And uh, it just, it, so everything you're saying, I, I would just uh, totally agree with and also add to that um, you were spending day and night trying to think, should we do, should we get harder on him? Yeah. and push him out or make him go somewhere or draw the line or kick him out of the house because then maybe he'll face natural consequences. Or do we let him stay? Do we send messages to him? It's almost like, you know, he's on a outward bound trip and he's in the three days of isolation at the end of the trip. And should we send him a little message in a bottle, you know, so to know we're still here? I mean, it's sort of like, how do we position ourselves? And, you know, to your credit, I mean, you tried every type of position and it was very hard and consulting to you. I felt too, like I was trying to figure out like what, where to go with this because, uh, and I, and then, and it was always this sort of dilemma about, do I crash into his life and make something happen? Or do I stand on the sidelines and wait for him to do something and then support it? I mean, and I think that that actually is what most parents go through one way or another. You happen to be an incredibly resourceful, smart, dedicated person who, who's willing to do anything for this boy. I mean, at one point, if I remember right, you helped him move out to a little house nearby or something like that, right? I mean, I forget why. We why? did. So we, he, you know, we did because we, we did, you know, we, were, we kept thinking, I didn't, I didn't want to I really, at this point, you know, he's in his early 20s. I didn't want to infant, in, infantilize him in that. I didn't, I wanted him to be able to, you know, have, you know, some money, you know, within limits and just be able to, you know, do things for himself. And sometimes, sometimes that would work for periods of time. And so we did put him in uh, a little house uh, near a golf course, not far from here that was rented. And, uh, and, you know, after what, I mean, he was, he had so much social anxiety that this house was in view of the street and in view of the golf course, part of the golf course kind of thing. And so, you know, one day he said to me, well, he goes, the place was in Eastman. He goes, I'm kind of like the Boo Radley of Eastman. Like he goes, I just, you know, I just stay in the house and sometimes, you know, and so it would have had to be this, this this perfect situation, you know, right. where he was in a place that had no view of any person. And then, you know, right. maybe he, and, but then, you know, I, I often thought about that. I thought, well, then what, you know, then he's, you know, maybe he has to get his own groceries and stuff, but, but then he's sitting in the house by himself. And my husband is also running over there and bringing him sandwiches and stuff because, <laughs> you know, we just, you just, then you worry about what's happening exactly. Right. Cause right, can right, get, right. so, so, it, you know, geographically changing the place isn't necessarily no. always the answer. I mean, I feel like sometimes when we left the house, he would step up. If we went away, he would step up because then he sort of had, he, he was constantly complaining about having no purpose in life. That was a very big thing. And when we left, then he was responsible for the dogs. He was responsible to check the oil. He was responsible for things 
and getting, you know, his own stuff in the house. And so sometimes that would um, be a good thing. But yeah. I think all these things, all these things kind of run their course or they seem to run their course. And they're not they're not the they're not the complete answer because he really still at his age, he needed to be around other kids his age. That's what he really or or, mm. or somebody mm. and in town and our, everybody had left all his other friends there in college. They're doing amazing things. And even when they called him, you know, what's he going to say? Yeah, I'm sitting here. I saw a great movie last night, you know, and, and meanwhile, his friends are in medical school. So it, it, it's uh, mm. it becomes mm. it becomes, I think, um, I don't think that, you know, sometimes you might think, well, you have plenty of time to deal with this and work on this with a kid. But I don't think that's true for him. I think he felt like the window that he had to be normal was closing really fast. And mm. I felt like he felt like, you know, if he didn't go to college right then, if he didn't, he was so far behind is how he felt mm. different to what we might think where we'd think, oh, so what if you're in college when you're 30 or so what if it's you're 35? Right. But for him, no, that window was closing and he felt it very strongly. And right. that's right. a that's it, it, it's a time limited thing. I think so torturous. It's so yes. torturous. Yes. Hey, Beth, could could you tell us what happened in terms of when he took his life and how you discovered that and what that was like? I, I, I'm I hesitate to even ask because it has to be such painful moments. But I but I know you've been through it in your mind a thousand times. I wonder if you can share that with people what the experience was and then we're and then after that we're going to go on to what you know what it was like to deal with that going forward. Yeah. So we were, um, Ted and I, my husband and I were away. We were actually in Hawaii. So we were like 5,000 miles away. And, um, but he, we felt okay about this because he was with Teddy. So COVID, you know, this was May, this, this happened May of 2020. COVID was, you know, just starting and, People weren't sure about it. So Teddy and Mariah had moved up to our house in New Hampshire from Boston because it was safer. And they were working remotely from our house. So they were with him, actually, like physically with him. And we felt good about that. It seemed like that would be a good thing. And um, so we were, it was May, uh, um, it was May 12th when we heard about it. It, uh, it was a six-hour time difference. So it was 3.30 in the morning there. And we got a call and it was from Teddy uh, and he was just, you know, I actually, he said, um, he said, uh, he did it. He fucking did it. He killed himself. And he was just, he couldn't hardly talk and he was just sobbing. And, and um, that's how we heard about it. And I, um, I meet uh, my first, my first thought was I just, all I could think about was I just wanted to to get to him. I wanted to get to Teddy because I didn't want him to be by himself. And and I actually got off the phone and I called my friend Laura, who is a very close friend and knows Teddy, knows Ross, knows our whole family. And she was she was out the door before I even hung up and she was there in probably five minutes flat. And she stayed with him and I was talking to him more on the phone. And then of course, then it's like, um, then, the police were there and the medical examiner was there and all this stuff that you don't even, you would never even know about. Like they're, they're just, they're asking me questions 
and I was thinking like, what you're at, you're, you're asking me these questions right now. And I didn't realize so much later that during this time until they figured what was happening, Teddy was a suspect, like actually. And so that didn't mm. even occur to me. Mm. And so it was just all this, all this stuff. And, and it was, uh, it was just very surreal. And so I, T Ted started calling his family. I called my brother, um, just so that I asked my brother to tell my mom, cause I didn't feel like I could do that. And then I, I called, I think I called my dad. I called, um, but then I really just wanted to focus on getting home. That was what I wanted to do. And at that point, everything was shutting down. So there were no, there were hardly any flights and I would book a flight and an hour later would get canceled. So, cause they were consolidating all the flights. No one was flying anymore. And so I finally, I booked three flights, two of them got canceled and we got one. And so we got out, uh, that evening and we flew, um, just, you know, I mean, it was 18 hours. We just flew. And I just remember like sitting in the airport, looking at this guy who was in a full on hazmat suit with, you know, goggles and everything and just staring at him. I was just crying. And it, it, it didn't feel as real as it might have if we were home because we weren't home and, and I wasn't seeing this stuff. So we got home anyway, we got home um, and we saw Teddy right away. Teddy would not come back to the house. So he left the house, Mariah and her mom came down from Hanover about half an hour away. They came down and got him um, and brought him back up to their house. And um, Laura picked us up at the airport. We got back and uh, I, we saw Teddy, but he wouldn't come to the house. Matter of fact, he's not slept a night in this house since um, ever. And uh, he'll come to the house now, but that's it. And so, so we saw Teddy and uh, then we just, the next day we went to the funeral home. Um, also just a very surreal experience. I, I, I mean, I can write about, I, I wrote about what it was like um, at the funeral home. I can read what I wrote if you want. Yeah, yeah. Um, Go ahead. Um, so I just wrote, uh, I remember after we left Ross at the funeral home thinking, I want to bring him home and put him in bed so that I can, I can find him and not Teddy. And I just want him to be here for a while longer. I also don't know exactly when they took him to be cremated and I thought he shouldn't go alone. And how does that all work anyway? But then it was done and Ted and I were standing in the funeral home arguing about urns in that surreal room until we had to just leave and leave everything there. So how do you pick out an urn and and what does it matter anyway? And so that's what I wrote because uh, it just, it just the, yeah, I just can't, I, it just was very, I think, honestly, I think the whole first year is just um, learning to believe that this really happened. That's, that's what it was for me anyway. It's just little, little by little then your brain like lets in whatever it can and, and, and you, and you do that. Yeah. So, and it seems like you, you know, your first instinct was to be a mom to Teddy and to take care of yes. him. So you're grappling both with wanting to protect and, and help him go through his own grief and you're dealing with your own, which just seems 
I don't Enormous. think I was. I don't think I was really dealing with my own things then, mm. really. At that moment, my, I, 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 I mean, a little bit. I, I guess I had to for sure. But, but my primary focus at that time was I just wanted Teddy and mm. Mariah to be okay. And so I just wanted to make sure. And so I called Alan, also Alan Frizzetti, because, um, I mean, at this point, one thing that, that was true is that a lot of my friends are therapists because of NEA. And so I called Alan just to get a recommendation for a trauma therapist for Teddy. And that made me feel a lot better. Just, just, I just wanted to get that in motion because, um, I was scared, you know, I was scared for him, but, but, but I know he'll talk about it too. You know, his friends just rallied, like he has a lot of good friends, but his friends just rallied around, like they just showed up. And I think that's the thing that you remember is the people who just like, they just appear like they drop work, they drop whatever, and they just appear and they don't know what they're going to do, but they're definitely going to be there. And that was true for me, but it was, you know, really true for Teddy. I think. I think something should be said here too, Beth, because he isn't on and he's not going to be on a podcast about your husband and how he was coping um, because yeah. he had such a different style than you. He did. And that was, that was something, you know, that was something that I didn't um, expect would be so hard. Like I had, I had kind of tried over the years to almost even picture like, what if this happened? Because he talked about it so much, but the picture is just, you find out, you know, the picture's different than the reality. And so Ted was, um, uh, he gravitated, he gravitated towards his family um, in a big way. And so while, while we were trying to get ready to, to even fly home, he was mostly on the phone with his family. And then um, he just needed to be with his family, I think. Uh, and, and I, 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 you know, it would be, I mean, Alan said to me, well, you could comfort each other. And, and I thought, yeah, no, I can't, I can't, I have no, I have nothing in me. I have no space in me for anybody else right now, you know, except maybe to think about Teddy, but I just, um, I couldn't do it. I really couldn't do it at all. And, and, and so it was, it was very hard for me to have Ted in the house, honestly, because I'd be upstairs and he'd be downstairs and I could hear him crying and I could hear him talking to Ross out loud. And it was awful. I mean, it was like being stabbed. And I've kind of felt like, I kind of, I kind of felt like he was doing it to me instead. And, and that's not the case at all, but it felt like it hurt me so much that I thought just, you need to just stop that because I couldn't handle it. And it's awful that I couldn't, but I couldn't. And so he would go to his family for pretty long stretches of time. And I think that was a good thing. He, he has a lot, he has a big family, lots of siblings and people. <laughs> and so he went there and then he threw himself into golf. And, um, but it was a very long time that that happened, that I would hear him. And I'd almost become like vigilant to it. I'd hear him like crying or talking to Ross. And it was um, really, <laughs> really bad. So that's you kind know, of I'm how we, we we kind of went our separate ways. I feel like for a, a long period of time, mm -hmm. and, and luckily, I think you know we've been married for almost forty years. You know, Nicole's thinking, "Oh, you got married when you were twelve? No, <laughs> no, no." But, but but I mean, we have we've been married, married for a very long time, and I think that was a good thing because you know, I mean, it wasn't I, it wasn't that I felt like we were going to split up or anything, but we we just kind of drifted away for a little mm -hmm. while. And that's what worked for us. 
And um, well, and one of the things tense. what you used to tell me too is, um, and I don't think this is, you know, out of bounds to just mention that though Ted isn't here, is that he he would when Ross was alive. One way he would relate to Ross was take him driving. They would just get in the car and go on what you, I think you called random rides. That's right. Yeah, they so, did that for, for years, years for and years. Years, random, that was just, always, Ted, Ted is very different than me. Ted, you know, Ted was a, is a very validating person. And he just kind of, he just kind of rolls with like, well, this is happening. And he's not very as change oriented as I am. And so he would just, he would just, all, every day, pretty much, say to Ross, you know, I'm going to get coffee. Do you want to come? And, you know, mm. half the time Ross would say no, and half the time he'd say yeah. And then yeah. he knew if you get in the car, in the beginning, he would get in the car without his shoes because he knew if he got in the car without his shoes, then you don't have to get out anywhere. There's no expectation of that, really. And so, you know, they wow. just would go. I mean, there's hundreds of miles of back roads in New Hampshire and Vermont, and they would just drive around, sometimes for hours, just drive around. And Ross, was always very um, grateful for that. He always thanked Ted. He'd say, you know, thanks, thanks, Dad. That he called him that, and he would just say that. It was, it was, uh, it, mm. it, it balanced out, I think, because you know Ted would do that, and meanwhile I'd be over here like strategizing. <laughs> what? <laughs> so it was, it was just a strange situation, but it was the way it was. Yeah, yeah. Hey, could you start now in in terms of getting into what it's been like now? Um, I don't think there's any obvious best way to do this because there's so much to it and there's way yeah. too much to say. But one of the things that stood out to me, and I wonder if you could start there, was to say the role of your best friend, Laura, mm. uh, in this, yeah. um, because that's, that really was striking to me. Yeah. So Laura, you know, she was our neighbor. She lives now in the next town over, but we've been friends. We generally, we've been exercising together pretty much daily for, I don't know, 20 years or something. And uh, she's a very, she's a very steady person. She's very consistent. She's very kind of naturally validating and, and very, I, I, she's about, she's a person I could count on probably more than anybody I know in my life, really. And um, so when, you know, when this happened, she was there for us in the biggest way possible, of course, for Teddy. And then she picked us up at the airport. And then when I came home and, and then, you know, she just, she was working remotely too. And she said, well, like maybe, you know, why don't we just do what we always have done and, and we'll just walk. And so we did. We walked five miles in the morning and five miles in the afternoon wow. every day. Wow. And that was that was like, I don't know, you know, I didn't have any, but I didn't want to talk to a lot of people. Honestly, I really didn't want to talk to a lot of people. I wanted to hide. And um, so that was something I could do. So and Laura is very I knew I did. If I wanted to talk, I could talk. If I didn't want to talk, I didn't have to talk. And we just walked and we walked really fast. And so we walked really fast. And, and, and so I didn't have to think I was just walking really fast and breathing. And that was uh, really good. And some days I would come home and just go back to bed and wait until the afternoon walk. And that's all I accomplished. But that was something that I did. And it was kind of a natural thing for me to do. And it was probably a good thing that we did that also because I wasn't I was eating ice cream mostly only that and so really or junk food or just like i don't know i couldn't imagine like cooking anything and i had we'd have sandwiches maybe we'd have a sandwich but mostly i just wanted to eat junk because it just felt 
good. <laughs> and so I just, that's what I did. I mean, I know some people don't eat anything, but I just ate junk and I ate a lot of ice cream. And so mm. that's kind of the way the days went. Um, yeah, that's kind of, that's, that's, that. so Laura was very, uh, and, you know, and still is and was always, uh, you know, whatever was going on for me on any particular day, she's there. She's just one of those people is what I meant is that she's just there. And that, and that is, you know, what I needed. Um, I mean, I had her and then I had you later on, you know, to talk to. And so it was like, I thought of it like my home and away team <laughs> kind <laughs> of, it was that, mm. that is what I, I was very grateful for that because I don't know um, my head just probably would have exploded if I, that's how it felt. It felt like my head would have exploded. Now, did, you, did you keep doing, I'm trying to remember what, what you dropped doing, what you were able to keep doing because, you know, you were a very busy family connections teacher yes. and uh, you had projects related to that. And yep. you did a lot of hiking and camping or at least hiking. A hiking. Lot. Yeah, I mean, I was on the board at that time. And, and, and in the beginning, it's interesting. I thought, you know, I kind of tried in the beginning to go back to to maybe like try to go back to the person that I was. And it, it, and you can't or Ali, I, you can't do that. It doesn't work. And so I, but I tried that. And after about actually in about two and a half weeks afterwards, uh, I was asked to to participate in a training that Alan was doing. And um just, just, just a simple part of it, like a breakout room or something. Mm. And I did that and I did it. And I think, and I don't know, I shouldn't have done it probably, but I did. And it, and, and cause I could do it in my sleep. It didn't require a lot of thought, but I don't think that was the smartest thing to do really, but I did do it. And I, I, uh, I don't know, but it became pretty clear early on that I couldn't, um, I wasn't gonna be going back to the person that I was something mm it was just not going to happen. So I needed to figure that piece out. And, um, mm. I think really the first thing I had to, I know we've talked about this, but, but, but guilt was mm. a very big deal. And that was something that I had to work through very hard. So say, say more about that yeah. because I think that it's so common. I mean, yes. that, that I think it'd be valuable for other, whether it's family members listening or clinicians listening or who, you know, other, yes. anybody. What, so what was it like? I, ha I, it was, it was the most, it was unbearable. It was really, because in the beginning, it was like an endless loop in my head mm. and it was just going around and around. And, and it was all about, um, it was all about how it was, in, in all the ways that it was my fault, you know, all, did I, did, did I miss, of course, did I miss signs? Did I, did I, uh, was I practicing, uh, acceptance, but really I'd given up on him. What was I, um, selfish, you know, all these things that I was thinking. And, and so I couldn't, it was, it was really, really awful. And so finally I, um, I thought, what, what is it? What could make me feel better about this? And, and, so I, ha I came up with this idea, and this is really what I thought. And I thought, you know, if there was a suicide court, then that would be what I would do. Like, I, and I was really thinking about it. Like, I thought I'd go in there, and there would be a jury, and I would lay out all the facts. I'd lay out, like, this is what I did. This is what I didn't do. And then the jury would, of course, mm -hmm. you know, of course, they would say, ah, yes, 
you, you know, you are guilty of these things. And so, and then this is your punishment. And that, you know, when I thought that, I thought, well, maybe that would really make me feel better if that was a thing. And, and of course, you know, it it was just very narrow. It was very, very narrow thinking. And um, I finally, what I finally did was after this went on for a very long time and, and, you know, you go through all these scenarios of what could be different and it's not different. And so then it's the dead ends all around. And um, finally, I thought, I thought, you know what? I knew that I wanted to move forward. I knew that. And so I thought, I'll just, I'll just take a, like a piece of that guilt, like a little piece of it, and I'll put it inside me and I'll just keep it there. And that, um, but, but I won't let it stop me like from, Mm. from, from moving forward. So that is what I did. That's what, and that made me feel okay. Like it felt like an okay solution that I had some of that, you know, I wasn't like acquitted really, but I had some of that in me, but I could still, I could still move forward. And so that's kind of how I came around to thinking about it. And my view of it expanded because as I started to talk to other people who he was close with, I recognized that everybody felt that way. So, so, Mm. you know, his friend, Alex, he had called her the week before and started talking about what do you think it's like to die? You know, and she was Mm. telling me this, you know, and so she of course felt like, but, but, you know, that's not, wasn't an atypical thing for him. And then, and then pretty much everyone, you know, said, oh, if I had done this or I should have done this or, you know, would the outcome have been different? So I started to see how everyone was thinking about it from their own point of view. And it was very centered on your own self and not so much on what Ross might be thinking or Mm. what really was going on with him. So that was helpful finally to Mm. realize, but Hmm. It is um, an awful thing. And, and, and Alan was helpful, actually, too. Um, I mean, I wrote what, uh, Alan, I, what he told me. I can, I can read it to you if you want. Sure, too. One day I was just outside and I was, it, he just caught me on a super bad day. I was just pacing and just thinking about all this stuff and I couldn't stop. And so he just happened to text me and then we talked and he said, he, you know, he, he has, he, I just said he has good metaphors and strategies. I, I told him about my suicide court idea and he followed it with a thought experiment. He asked if I would convict myself if I was a juror or an observer. And then this, he also spoke about responsibility and the fact that it has the word response in it. He, he said, if we were on a huge barge and Ross fell or jumped in, what could we do? If we go out with a dinghy to help, he still has to climb into the dinghy to be saved. He might perceive that he can't do it, or he might not want to. And then I thought he might not think the dinghy is a better place or safer even than he is in the water. And I felt like we rode around in in that dinghy for a really long time. And it also felt like sometimes I jumped in the water with him for a while. And so I thought, you know, that point I thought, I, I realized that I have to use all the skills that I already know but use them in this context. So it's a little like starting over again and I can choose to be effective and move forward. He said, picture yourself in a big field with a line in it. And one side of the line is moving forward and one side is moving backward, but it's a really long 180 degree line. So there's many, many things I can choose to do to move forward. And it doesn't really matter what, 
but that thing will be better than going backwards and having to come all the way back again or going in circles. Mm. So that at that moment, he just caught me at a right time at that moment. I needed something simple I could put in my head and, and that was helpful. And then at the end, he actually, he said, he said, um, he said, leave room for joy. And I thought, yeah, no, that's <laughs> like, nope, <laughs> no, that, you know, I thought, and, and I couldn't, that part like didn't register at all, uh, you know, until, until way later. But, um, but anyway, that, that, that's kind of what, ha what, what I went through with that. Um, Were you able to leave room for joy as time went by? Um, yeah. You know what I like? Yeah. Now, uh, not for a very long time. Now I, I think of your, Natalia, Natalia's podcast too. If nobody, anybody has not listened to that, Natalia was super helpful to me. That podcast ultimately was really helpful to me. And um, she talks about complicated joy. And I think that's a really good word because it is complicated. And later on, if I would, you know, suddenly feel like I was having a good day, immediately it would be followed by, by, uh, sadness or bad feelings or just just not good feelings. So the, I never saw those two so close together before because that happened repeatedly where mm. you have a good day and then it, it, you feel bad the next day because of because, maybe because of that. But um, Natalia was very, uh, we wrote back and forth a few times and she actually uh, was very helpful to me. Let me just How say, did, because oh, people listening, mm -hmm. Natalia was a, a young psychologist or student at the time. And we did a podcast or three or four pod, three podcasts, I think, a long time ago, after the death of her two-year-old son shortly after his birthday, when he had been perfectly healthy. And so she talked about the grief and how she'd cope with that. So I just wanted to, to add that. I, so I, when I listened, it wasn't until probably a year later, a year later on, I... I I thought, oh, I should listen to this again. And so I did. I listened to her podcast again. And, of course, I had listened to them before, but not in this context. And so I listened to them. And, and my thought of her was that she was, and I told her this, I said, I think that you're like an emotional, badass Wonder Woman. Like, that's how I thought of her, honestly. And I thought, I thought, and she said, well, I'm going to put that on my door now. <laughs> but but, but I, I, that's how I really thought of her because she just, like, just, you know, went for it in a way that I, I, I it took me, a year or more, a year or more before I could do, you know, some of those things. And so then I started thinking, you know, I need to become at that time, I started thinking I need to become more of an emotional badass, like, I really, because I'm not good at that. You know, I'm just not, I can do all kinds of physical things. I really can. And I'd rather <laughs> way rather, but that, that, uh, was a turning point, I think mm. in my head for, uh, you know, how I needed to, to move forward, lean like you said, you suggested that I lean in more. <laughs> and so that's what mm -hmm. I needed to do. Along those lines, you know, how did the way that you talk to yourself in moments of difficulty evolve and change since maybe, you know, the years before Ross's death up through now? Yeah. Um, so before, before, uh, you know, I was pretty just, I was pretty focused on just trying to figure out, um, not about me so much, 
but 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 figure out what to do. Although I did try to focus on being accepting more. I did focus a lot on that because that was hard for me. And so I did do that. And that helped. That gave me moments of connection with him that I might not have ever had. And now, of course, now those are really, really important to me. So I'm glad for that. In the beginning, actually, in the beginning when this happened, briefly, I thought, briefly, I thought, you know, the skills are bullshit. They're just bullshit because they didn't work. You know, they didn't work for me. I kind of, I kind of thought like maybe they'd be some kind of a talisman, you know, against what happened. And of course that's not accurate, but, but, but I did think that. And, uh, and then, you know, over time, I, I, I think talk, the way that you talk to yourself about, uh, you know, about guilt, um, is a very big deal. And so I would have to actually, it's a choice. Yeah. I think you have like, it's a choice. You can stay in it. Yeah. which is very, very miserable, or you yeah. can, you know, find ways to go out of it. And sometimes I would look, you know, I have hundreds and hundreds of emails that I wrote on his behalf mm. to all kinds of people, wherever he was. And um, so I would look at those and I would think, you know, why I did, I wrote all those, like I did that. And so, yeah. you know, and I know that we suffered at all of us. So, so it, 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 it is sometimes you, you just have to really flip it over and think about it in a different way. Or you, you just, I, I, you know, you can't, you can't function. And I knew that I wanted, I knew that I wanted to um, be living again. Like I knew, I knew that I, I did know that, but that I think is a choice too. But I knew, knew that for me, I wanted to, for me and for Teddy and for mm. Ross and Mariah, I mean, well, for Ross too, but for Mariah and Ted, mm. I wanted to, and then I thought, well, I can, then what? So do I do it 20% or do I do it mm. all the way? And so I thought, well, no, I think I have to do it 100% or, wow. or not. it's not going to work. So that's kind of what I did. But it, but, um, it is a very much a day-to-day. Yeah. It's a, it was a day-to-day thing and sometimes you just get stuck you know i i think that's having seen you through this intermittently during these last couple years that at the beginning you might say you were kind of disabled yes by the whole thing i mean you were it was just sort of like you you were wounded it was sort of like somebody who has been through a massive accident and they and it and all you can think about at the beginning is to try to just make it day to day i mean yeah that was an early part, and you would try to think of things, but at that point, there are certain suggestions that don't go very far, like throw right. yourself all in or lean into it or go do yeah, this yeah, or yeah. No, be no. an emotional badass and yeah, yeah. all no, of this kind year, of stuff. That's a no, year, yeah, that's a year down the road, and I'm glad you're emphasizing that yes. because really this this past year, it's been different. Yes. Your, their, your tone has been different. The, you've, re, you've connected and heard from people who touched Ross's life and whose life who's who he touched you've heard from all these different people and that has been supportive of you just to yes. realize you know he's he's still so much alive in so many people's minds he made such a difference to so many people even in his own strange life that he lived i mean yes in his own isolated way he made this powerful impact and i think you started to take that in more you got out more you went back to you know some work projects and uh, it's just your tone started to be like as if, okay, now I can make the choices that I couldn't right. even make a year ago. You know? Right. 
No, I think that is really true. The, like I said, the first year, and actually when I, that, that, I think that whole first year when I came to see you, I was just, what I was doing was just collecting like all the sad things, all the sadnesses, and then I would come and just like tell you them. You just and tell that, them. And just yeah. tell you them. And, and, and you, you know, sometimes I'd drive away and I would think, you know, really, Charlie didn't say very much, really. And that's because <laughs> I just was telling you all these sad things. And, and that, but I felt better. Like I felt lighter each time. And, and in retrospect, I think I should have come see you more. Like, I think I, yeah. I often waited. I waited until I was just like in a crisis situation. And then that's I would true. call you and, and then I really didn't need to see you like that minute, you know? And so I think, I think, um, Hmm. that is the way it went for a year is just doing that. And, and then after a year, I, I did, it was sort of a, a shift, but, but just like, there's one other thing that I, why I, uh, I wanted to, to read. And this happened, this happened, this, this, I reflected on um, in the very, very early days. It was very important to me to call everyone in the very, very beginning, I really was focused. I needed to call everyone and tell them what happened. And, and I really felt like I needed to do that. And I also wanted to, you know, get some special things to some of his friends. But, but I, um, this is what I wrote after uh, I had uh, talked to some people and told them. And so I, I wrote, um, I remember talking to Lori and Nancy, and I heard the confusion in their voices about why I sounded so good. And Nancy asked, where do you stand on all this? And I had made a list of people to tell and my mouth and my body were moving, but I wasn't really all there and not feeling it fully. And somewhere in my head was saying, well, I am telling you this, but it's not really real. And I will maybe call you back and have to tell you that everything is okay after all. And it wasn't real. And this wasn't conscious, but somewhere. So I was detached and more um, emotionless. But now... I think, where is he? And is he okay? And is he even? And Ted said, I can't believe that all we have is ashes. And that really jolted me because I think that too. And so, mm -hmm. you know, that was the way it was in the very beginning. It, mm -hmm. it's, it, it, I did really sometimes think, you know, that he was on a trip or something and he was coming back or mm -hmm. that, you know, you, you know that that's not true, but it's, you know, you hear a noise in the house and you think, oh, it's, it's him. Mm. So it just um, mm. takes, it takes a lot longer than I thought. Like it just takes a whole lot longer than I thought. And you have to be patient. And I, I'm not that patient. And um, one other person that helped me from your podcast is Cedar. So I wrote to Cedar and um, she wrote back and, and she said, um, I was asking her how she handled like the anniversary. And, and she said, she said, you know, she said the second year for her, wasn't really very different uh, than the first. And she said, really a turning point was her for her was like the third year. Mm -hmm. And so that was really helpful to me because I felt all this pressure after a year, I kind of thought, okay, people are going to have this expectation that I'm okay now. And I'm not, I'm just so not okay. And so that was really helpful because the second year, I think, it's um it's 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 uh it's the first year like without the the shock and the trauma so and so it's real like it feels it feels really real and so you get more sad i felt really really deeply like sad in my bones the second year and mm -hmm. it's very hard to um 
And, mm. and at that point, people aren't asking you anymore. They're not saying, you know, how, how are you? They're mm. just like thinking mm. they're not talking about it. So mm. I appreciated really when someone would say to me, like, how is it for you now? Because it sucks. Mm. It's not good. <laughs> um, Cass, before we get to, oh, uh, so, ahead, yeah, no, I just, yeah. I'm curious if, you know, you've had any kind of relationship with Ross you know, in, in your mind, in your imagination, just as time and how that maybe has has yeah. also changed that's or evolved. Question. Yeah, that's a good question, actually, because, you know, I'm not a religious person. Ross was neither really no one in our family as yeah. I was raised Catholic, but I'm not. And so um, I, I did go see a medium and I did that with Alex, actually, one of his good friends, Alex. We both went together and um, I t- flat out, like I told her, I said, look, you know, I mean, I'm more, I, I like data, you know, and evidence and yeah. stuff. And I said, I said, you know, I said, I'm really skeptical about this. I'm just going to tell you right now. And then she, she said, that's fine. You know, and I recorded it because she let me. And, um, it was really, I, ha- it was a good experience. I mean, there are certainly some things that are generic, you know, but, but, mm-hmm. but there's other things that I have no explanation for really. And there are things that happened afterwards that also I have no explanation for. And I tried to explain them away and they didn't, they weren't explainable. And so that made me feel that really did make me feel, you know, if anybody could get a message through, it would be Ross. Like, actually, (laughs) I think that because he has such a, you know, and even this medium, you know, she said that she goes, wow, he's so, she's he's so forceful. And I was like, yeah, you know, and so that was really, um, I'm, I'm much less skeptical about those things now than I was before. And I'm much, and I, and there were lots of things actually that happened that, you know, for which I have no explanation and yeah. I don't know, you know, that's that was a great question. And that's really, that's well, I wish we had more time on this particular yeah. thing. It's something I've given a lot of thought to. And, um, yeah, but I did want to, I, before we got to the end, and we're sort of just within the final few minutes, I wonder if you could say a little about this event that you planned that brought together a memorial for Ross. Uh, right. Yeah, I'll let you tell what you did. So it took, the, the, Natalia was also helpful for me here because in the beginning, like the first year I was paralyzed and I felt like anything I do is going to be so stupid and he would think it's stupid and it's not going to be big enough and it's not going to be meaningful and all that stuff. And then, you know, Nicole, I mean, Natalia said, um, you know, you can do lots of little things. And, um, and she felt the same way in the beginning. And so I, 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 I had done uh, a little AFSP American foundation for suicide prevention has these out of the darkness walks that they do for, uh, people who have, uh, had a suicide in their family. And, um, so I found one online that was in New Hampshire, just like three weeks before it was going to happen. And, and I'd been thinking about what I could do. I was like agonizing over what I could do because I, I felt it was time to do something. And so I saw this and I thought, well, I'll just do it. I'll just like, th- even if I'm only me going there, I'll just throw it out there. And so I, um, I put it like I signed up for it. And then, of course, it was on social media, which I'm also not great at. But I, I did it. And then all of a sudden, all these people started signing up and and Teddy was you know, very excited about it. And Mariah and all, all his frat brothers and everybody. And so it turned out to be, and then you came to it. And so it turned out to be like a really good day. We had 20, 
23 people come who was just on our team and climb this little mountain in New Hampshire mm-hmm. that we climbed and it's beautiful. Yeah. And, it, and it was also a mountain that we had taken him up many times when he was a kid. So mm-hmm. he'd been up there before. And so, you know, all these people just came and it was, and, and all these people donated money and Teddy raised like more money than anybody on the whole thing. And so it was just like, it was just turned out to be way better than I thought it would be. And, um, we're going to do it every year. So yeah, it was just a, it was, it it was very, um, it was a good feeling. It was a very good feeling. I, I really, I really, and we, you know, we were just all up there and, um, we just all yelled at the same time. We love you, Ross. And, um, it was just, uh, very, very happy that we did it. And I'm very happy that you came and, yeah, that was really good. Yeah, me too. I got to meet. I mean, I had heard about so many people, and I got to meet. And, and uh, you know, I, I thought I would hang out with your husband, but he's such a fast walker. He's <laughs> such a strong hiker that I I was left in the dust with, with, <laughs> some, other, with some sympathetic people. Yeah, um, yeah. But it was, it was amazing. And for those who don't know, it, it's a it's called Mount Major, and it overlooks Lake Winnipesaukee. So you go up to the top of this and you have this beautiful view of this huge lake, mm. and it was a place Ross had been. And, and, and you know, when we put some pictures on, on my website where the, where the podcasts are archived, and we haven't done that yet, but there'll be a picture from up on Mount Major of all of these people, all 23 people uh, there. And it was, a, it was a somber and joyous event. It really was. It was so deeply touching to everybody there. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone recognized, you know, it's like we hadn't, it was, we hadn't had a, a, like a a service for him and we certainly weren't going to go in a church, you know? And so this was that really, this This was was that, this was that. And I think it it felt good. Um, And, you know, we'll do uh, uh, some other things, but I just think that was a really good thing. Yeah, it was a, it was a really good thing. And it's been so, uh, I'm so appreciative that you came on here because, you know, the way yeah. you've talked about Natalia's podcast and Cedar's podcast and other things like that. There was a podcast of a man who went through the Hurricane Maria in Puerto yes. Rico. And, mm. then, you know, To Hell and Back is the podcast. And people, you know, like you really have benefited from others. And I swear to God that what you've just done. Oh, my goodness. Is going to be so helpful for so many people. It's just such a unique situation. I mean, it's not unique. It's unique for people to be out there talking about it yeah. openly the way you are so, so courageously. So thanks for doing it, uh, Beth, and and for your family, because Teddy and Mariah are each going to come on in a, one separate podcast Wonderful. each because they feel they each have such different feelings about it. So there's going to be a whole set of podcasts beginning with the previous one and then two more after this. And, uh, and so thanks for coming on and... Um, and I, I have no doubt that I'm going to start getting uh, messages and comments from people. I, I would invite them, and I'll share anything with you yeah. that uh, comes through through us. Uh, okay? Yeah, thank yes. you, Beth. You're welcome. I, I was very uh, nervous about this, <laughs> or, or actually, and so I'm just glad that it went. Uh, I did, you know, you you are both easy to talk to, so it, it was... It was okay, Good. and I'm also glad it's over. <laughs> so. Yes, yes, yes. 
Her, but right. Teddy well, Mariah will be great. So yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank it you. It was a privilege. Stop thank now. you. Yeah. So I want to invite everybody that uh, listens to this to make comments, uh, review, rate, review, whatever. If you get any messages, you can uh, and share with comments. people that that might benefit. Pass right, it on. Sure. Pass it on to people because it's a kind of unique resource now. Yeah. Thanks, Beth. Thank you. And Nicole. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Thanks, Beth. Thanks, Charlie. Bye.